Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. The other day, um, uh, my youngest daughter, Caroline, said, Dad, you know, the video you showed before the sermon last week, uh, it was good and all, but you know what, Matt had to go through a lot of, you know, a lot of work, he had to bring everybody in, he had been a couple nights and do all that work, probably worked a couple days on, he said, she said, you know, it, it could have been so much easier if you had used another clip uh, as the bumper. I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. It's kind of funny, sort of. But you know, about halfway through this message this morning, I have a feeling that some people are going to be sitting there going, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. But it's not silly, and I want to kind of show you that, and I want to show you how much depends on the subject that we're talking about uh, this morning. A.W. Tozer once said this, he said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Yet if you were to ask most people, what do you think about God, who do you think God is, you'd find out just how imprecise squishy, and I think downright unbiblical, the average person's understanding of who God really is. Now, that may sound like a big deal, or it may not sound like a big deal, but if we consider that our vision of God determines how we see everything in our world, how we see our neighbors, how we see ourselves, how we see the future and the past, everything, when we think about that, when we think that it's tied to our vision and our view of who God is, then all of a sudden, a proper understanding of God is really, really important, wouldn't you say? Is God an angry judge? Is he an impersonal force? Is he an old man with a long white beard sitting on a throne somewhere in the sky? Or is he just awe and wonder? You know, you sit and you watch the sunset. That's God. The early Christians who formulated the creed were under the impression that what we thought about God mattered a lot. Probably the most essential, thoroughly Christian teaching about the nature of God has to do with a doctrine that we rarely, rarely speak about and that we rarely teach. In fact, a lot of people might have that same reaction when they hear this doctrine that little Natalie Wood in Miracle on 34th Street had when she was asked to believe in Kris Kringle, a.k.a. Santa Claus. I believe, I believe, I know it's silly, but I believe. The creed, though not explicitly, explicitly stating it, is saturated in a firm belief in the Trinitarian nature of our God. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you a basic definition of this doctrine of the Trinity. Just talk a little bit about it. And it's a, it's a core belief of our teaching about the nature of God. And then I want to briefly explore the implications that the Trinitarian nature of God has for us, why it's important, it is important, you'll see, and how Jesus Christ fits into the whole thing, okay? If you were to say to me, uh, Pastor, uh, I'm going to write a book, you know, what, let's say a young adult comes up to me, Pastor, I'm going to write a book, and uh, I, I wonder, I would love for you to write the foreword of my book. Well, the first thing, uh, you know, I would say was, you know, wow, that's, 
That's quite an honor. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I would, I, would, I would love to do that. And I said, well, what's the topic? Well, the topic is I want to give the proofs uh, of how the earth and all the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun. I would probably think about that for a minute. And I say, well, you know, that certainly is an honor that you want me to write the forward, and I certainly would do that. But you know nobody's going to read your book, right? And certainly nobody's going to spend five cents on it. Why? And that would be true. Nobody would read it. Why? Because in 2016, everybody knows that the planets revolve around the sun. We all get it, okay? Now, I would probably say to them, you should maybe find another subject that could sell, that would have great interest in the public, you know, why Brad and Angelina broke up, or, or why, you know, the, the, the Bachelor or the Bachelorette is still on television, how that could possibly be. Do that. You'll sell some books on that. Now, one of the most amazing, remarkable, important things to know about the New Testament is that the Trinity, that is, that we have one God in three persons, is assumed everywhere. It's in the background, and it's throughout the entire New Testament, and if you look, it's in the Old Testament, too. From the time of Genesis chapter 1, when God said, at creation, you remember it, let us make God in our image according to our likeness, the three-in-one nature of our God is an assumed understanding, and it's kind of, it's kind of in, the, in the shadows, in the background of all the action that goes on in the Old and New Testament. It's always there. There is not one section, one paragraph, one verse dedicated solely and explicitly to teaching about the doctrine of the Trinity, though there are many portions of Scripture that give us a fair amount of insight. Uh, you know, Lee just read one of those from Colossians chapter 1. So what is the Trinity? Well, we're talking about the Trinity, and we're, you know, it's throughout the creed, even though you know, it's not explained you know, in detail, it's in the creed. What are we talking about when we talk about the Trinity? Well, if we want to talk about the Trinity, and we want to have an orthodox, biblical understanding of what this doctrine is, you need to remember four words. It really should be three words, but right, Trinity? But we're, doing, we're going to do four words. And I want to take them one at a time, which is always a good thing to do when you're teaching anything, to take things one at a time. So here they are. Ready? The first word. First word is one. One. We believe that there is one God. This is the unwavering message of both the Old and the New Testaments, most famously articulated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Shema. Remember what it says? Hear, O Israel, something that a Jewish man would recite every single morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. It says, hear, Israel, all of Israel, gathering close, the Lord our God is one. And it would have been very, very important for them to understand that. Why? Because all around them, they were surrounded by polytheistic nations. Most nations had one main God, but there was sometimes hundreds and hundreds of gods that kind of either emanated from that God or were surrounding that God. I mean, when, when Paul went to Athens, you know, he, he, was, he was shocked and astounded and disgusted, this Jewish man who all his life had said, Hero is the Lord of God, the Lord is one, by saying statues to every God under heaven. And even a statue that said, uh, to whom it may concern, because we, we, you know, we may screw up and we may miss one of the gods, so here, here's a statue to you and just put your name on it and wherever you live, put your name on it. Okay, All the cultures around Israel believed in multiple, multiple gods. Even over in the New Testament, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, Paul says this, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no god but one. Anything in either the Old or the New Testament 
uh, other than the worship of one God, was considered idolatry. And what's happening to Israel all the time? What happened, what happened to the nation of Israel time and time and time? Yeah. They were warned about it. Moses, before he went off and died on the mountain, had them all stand up, and he preached three sermons to them. And he said, you know what? Don't fall into idolatry. Don't fall into idolatry. Don't go to the nations around you. Our Lord, our God is one. He's one. He's one. Don't fall into what they're doing. The Old Testament, the New Testament, says this. There is one God, one nature, one name, one being. So the first thing, when we're talking about the Trinity, you got to know, the first word is what? It's one. Second word is three. Three. The Bible clearly indicates that there is a plurality of persons within the one Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who all are equally God. You go to the beginning of the book of John. The book of John was written to Greeks. John's writing to Greeks, and he's trying to break out and bust out of the, you know, the Jewish background that, you know, that basically the, the, uh, the church had started in. And he goes to the Greeks, and he talks to the Greeks on their la- with their language and their understanding. And he says this at the beginning of the book of John. He says, in the beginning was the word. They would understand what that means. You know what the word meant? The word meant the prime mover. The philosophers would say there is one up there who has got this whole thing going. He is the word. So when he used that word, word, they all got it. All his Greek listeners, all his Greek readers, they they understood. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul speaking then a few few verses later, all the way down, slide down to 16, says this. For in him, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul parroted the words in Colossians chapter 1 when he talked about Jesus being there at creation and all things holding together. Paul declares then that Jesus is God. The exact replica, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, the exact replica of God, the supreme being who's created all that we see. Now, Jesus, he seems to be indicating, is un, he's the uncreated creator. Because as verse 6, 16 says, all things were created by him and for him. All through the Gospels, you see Jesus doing things that indicate that he is much, much more than a man. Even if you didn't have John. You didn't have John. Okay, John's not there. John, Gospel of John chapter 1 is not there. Colossians chapter 1 is not there. You see him doing things that you say, wait a minute. You know, there's something else going on here. I mean, you would see him uh, forgiving sins. Remember when, um, uh, uh, and I think it was... Tradition says it was Peter's house. They brought the paralytic man. Remember there was a big crowd. Jesus is healing. And look, when somebody's healing, they're giving out free healing. I mean, people come from all over, all over the place. And they would crowd it. They crowded into the courtyard. And they crowded into the house. And you couldn't fit another person in the house. And this poor guy, he was a paralytic. His friends bring him. Do you remember the story? You remember the flannel graph, right, when you were kids? And, and, and they bring him in. And they go up to the roof. And I think it was Peter's roof. And they started digging in the roof. Now, I want to tell you something. I had a shotgun. And that was my roof, and somebody was coming and digging in my roof. I think I would have taken a couple of, right, right up to the ceiling. I don't care who was coming in, because I saw how thatched roofs are made when I was in Ireland very recently. And it's a lot of effort and a lot of work. Anyway, they cut open a big hole in the roof, ruined the roof, and they lowered this guy down before Jesus, because there was no other way to get to him. And you know what Jesus said? 
Jesus looked at the man and he said, your sins are forgiven, rise and walk. And the religious leaders went berserk. Why? Because they knew what Jesus was claiming for himself. Only God could forgive sins, they said. Jesus said, you know, one day I'm going to come back to judge the earth. Wait a minute, only God can judge. Oh, right, 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 right. See, he was always saying stuff like that. By the way, the Holy Spirit, too, is beginning less. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? Genesis 1, verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, all of them, all of them, the Bible says, are equally God. The Bible clearly says that God is one. There is not a plurality of gods. The Bible also teaches that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three persons, are God. Still with me? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, if you're not, I'm going to keep going on anyway, all right? Third word, third word, diversity, diversity. You know, you're sitting here and you're listening and you're going, all right, all right, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. I think I got this out. Let, 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 me, let, let me spread this back to you. God is one, but he's also in three persons. So that must mean that God is like a big cherry pie. And you cut it up into three slices, and the Father gets a slice, and the Son gets a slice, and the Holy Spirit gets a slice of the pie. Right? Wrong. No, that's, that's not right. Again, again, God is one God, not three gods. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this, For in Christ, listen, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. In other words, they're saying he's got the whole pie. He is fully God. You know who else has the whole pie? The Father. You know who else has the whole pie? The Holy Spirit. Fully God. There are not three gods. Our God is one. There's one God in three persons in this one being. And it's not enough to say that each one is a third of being, the, having the being of God. Another has a third and last has a third. And actually, you know what? Everyone's got just a little piece of the pie. No, that's not it. All right, I say that to you. So you go, all right, all right, all right. Okay, I get it. I get it now. I get it again. I got the answer. Our God is one, right? Yes. One God and three persons who are each fully God. Correct. Okay, I get it now. I got it. It's like water. You know what? Water, you see it flowing in the stream in the summer. You're swimming in it. You're fishing in it. Then all of a sudden, you know, it gets about 20 degrees in the winter. And what happens? It, it, it freezes over. It becomes ice. And I chip the ice. We're out camping one day. And we chip the ice. And we put it in a pot. And we put it over, uh, you know, in some nice warm coals. And it becomes steam. Or it's like a guy in a small town. You know, you go into a small town. And he wears the different hats. All the, he's the mayor. And he's the sheriff. And he's the cook at the diner. And sometimes he's wearing the different hats at different times. And one time you call the guy officer. And at the times you, you call the guy Mr. Mayor, and then he flips flapjacks, and you call him Cookie, right? No, nice try, but no, that's not it at all. When water is steam, it's not flowing. When it's ice, it's not steam. It can't be all three at the same time. When the mayor marries a couple, he's not making a chicken parmesan sandwich, or he's not writing out a parking ticket. He's not doing all those things at the same time. 
Jesus often talks about the Father and the Holy Spirit all the time. He prays to his Father in heaven. Who's he praying to? I mean, who's he, who's he praying to? Well, maybe some, some people would say, I think he was praying to himself, which presents other problems, okay, when you think about it, okay? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way out of this, and then he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but what? Whose? Your will be done. What about that? Who's he talking to? What's he talking about? There is one God. This one God consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who are all equally God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. It's, you know what it's called? It's called diversity. Although they have different roles and function, they have different functions within the Godhead, the one Godhead, they are all fully God all the time. Fourth word. Fourth word. Let me take a drink here. Fourth word. Unity. Unity. These three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, nonetheless, exist in perfect unity and harmony with each other. And you know what they do all the time? Continually, 24-7, every second of every day, of every minute, of every year. You know what they do? They glorify each other. They continually bring glory to one another. In John chapter 17, the Father gives glory to the Son. Go back two, two chapters. In John chapter 15, the Holy Spirit gives, gives uh, glory to Jesus. Both give glory to the, to the Spirit. What does it mean when they're doing that? What does it mean to glorify something or someone? You know what it means? It means to adore them. It means to delight in them. It means to bless them. It means to praise them. It means to appreciate someone. And that praise and appreciation, you know what always happens? If you are glorifying something or someone, that praise and that adoration and that appreciation and that's, oh man, how great, it always works itself out into service to please that individual or please whatever it is. It means to serve. Glorifying literally means to serve. It's, it's not coerced. It's just, it is what it is. Because of who, you know, how you feel about this individual, you just want to serve that individual. The motivation isn't like, you know, you should do this. You really ought to do this because if you don't do this, you're in a lot of trouble. It's not, you don't have to do that. Nobody has to pin you to the wall. You do it because, what's the motivation? Love. Love is the motivation. Now, none of the members of the Godhead demand, demands glory from the other. They just give it. In the, in the Trinity, there exists no jealousy, there's no hostility, there's no disharmony. The Trinity is a perfectly united community. All right. So there you got the four words, right? Here's, here's the doctrine of the Trinity. One, three, diversity and unity. There's one God who exists eternally as three persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same. They're different from each other, serving different roles, and yet they exist and they function in perfect unity. Perfect unity. All three persons of the Trinity are united and involved in everything else God does. And listen. Final word. You ready? If you lose any one of those four words, you've lost the doctrine of the Trinity. You've lost it. Now, if you've listened to what I've just said, and your reaction is, I believe, I believe, 
It's silly, but I believe. Um, that, that, that's a little, I'm a little uncomfortable with that, but basically get in line. Basically get in line. Um, there's a lot of people who are like, uh, repeat that. Is this on tape? Can I listen to this later? Is it, is it going to be on, uh, online or anything? Because, you know, I missed about 98%. No, you didn't, you didn't miss anything. Jerry Packer said this in his book on theology, Jerry Packer said this. He said, the historic doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. Jerry Packer, if I sat down and had lunch with him, uh, I wouldn't know three-quarters of what he's talking about. I just wouldn't. I was like, do you like your food? I mean, at some point I'd break in because he'd be talking and I wouldn't have one clue. The guy has a mind... He's brilliant. He's written, I don't know how many books, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of books on theology and this and that and everything else. Everybody uses them. He's in every Bible college, every seminary. And, and he says, you know what? It is, it, it's, it's the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. One writer said, the Trinity is a mind-twisting idea, a paradox beyond our ability to, grasp, to, to fully grasp. But I have to tell you something. That's the best I can do. That is the Trinity. Now, you're sitting there and going, well, I don't quite get it. Well, I don't quite get it either. i got to tell you right now. But, but there's something that I do get. I do get what it means. And as I was thinking about it this week, there, there are reasons why it's important that we believe in our Trinitarian God. And we know that we have a Trinitarian God. Because it's important to me and it's important to you. But why? Why is it important for you and for me? Well, I think, I think there's several reasons why it's, why it's so important for us. Um, if God is three in one, if we serve a triune God, then it means that, folks, if you peel back the layers of time, if you peel back space, you go before there was anything but God, do you know what you would find? You know what you'll find at the center of all creation? Love. You will find Love at the center of it all, at the center of everything, is love. The Bible says, in summing up this triune God, you know, you know what John said in 1 John? John said, God is loving. He is loving. He didn't say that. John's summing up who God is. And he says, God is what? That's who he is. See, if you, if you do this... And you go back to the beginning. God is love. Love is at the center of the universe. He, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's not an adjective. It's, an, it's who he is. God equals love. At the foundation of the universe, in other words, is not matter. It is not laws. It is not energy. It's not even will. It is a loving relationship at the beginning of everything. We believe in a relational God, a relational God, a God who has existed forever. And listen, perfect, loving relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever in eternity past. Lover and be loved. Because you're always going to have two to tango, right? At least two, right? Yeah, two to tango. Yeah, if, 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 you, if you have one, how can you, you got to have a love, you got to have someone who's loving, and you got to have a, a, an object of love. You have to have that. Before there were planets, before there were stars, before there were galaxies, and long before there was you or me or anyone else for God to love, the Trinity, our God, was in perfect, loving community. Always. 
The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that this world is built on the foundation of an eternally loving relationship. Now, i got a question for you. When have you been the happiest in your life? Think back for a minute. What, maybe it's right now. When have you been the happiest in your whole entire life? I'm going to answer the question for you. I know when it was. It's when you have somebody who adored you. It's when you had somebody who you adored. It's when you're sitting there and you're basking in somebody's love and they're basking in your love. Uh, yes? No? Yeah? Okay. All right. I just want to make sure you're with me. It could be, you know, it could be, it could be, it could be a parent and a child. It could be a friend to a friend, David and Jonathan. It could be a romance. It could be a marriage. It could be a grandparent with a grandchild. It can even be, don't send me unsigned letters, okay? It can even be a human with an animal. Sorry, I really do believe that. I really think that, you know what? Animals, are animals loving? Of course they are. You go home, you had a rot rotten day, everybody's yelling at you, you go home, the dog is slobbering on you, he's jumping all over you, it's like, you know, and you love it, right? You love it because they give you that love. We want that, we crave that. We hold that baby in our arms and we shower it with love, even though it has no way of understanding, and when we don't get it, we are so frustrated. We have a dog that's like a cat. I don't know how we did this, but we have a dog that's like a cat. You know how a cat doesn't care about you? A cat can say, well, yeah, maybe I'll let you pet me, or maybe I won't, something like that. That's cats. That's why I hate cats. I don't like cats. They're just, they're just so independent. I don't like them. I like dogs. Dogs need you. Dogs need me. Every dog we've ever had has loved me the best. <laughs> Sorry. Marianne feeds them. They love me the best. That's all there is to it. And then I have this dog who the other day, who just, you know, could kind of care less. And I'm, 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 I'm in my office, my home office, and I'm working on this right, right at this point. And she comes in, she sits there, and she looks at me. And I said, Riley, come here, baby. Come here, come here. And she looks at me, and she gets up, and she turns away. I say, why don't you love me? I said that. I really did. Why don't you love me? You should love me. I do everything for you. And you know what? It's very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating when we don't get it, right? We are made in the image of God. And when we love and in turn serve and we build up, you know what? That's when we're most happy. That is when we are most happy. When someone is loving us and we are loving them right back. That's it. Ultimately, listen, we were made... In the image of God, we were made to adore and serve God. It is when we are the happiest. At the center of the universe, you know what's at the center of the universe? Love. And you know what? That's something we all want. It is something we all want. Yes. If you understand that, then you must understand that the good feelings generated by those kind of relationships that we have, you know, Riley, not so much, but you know, other, others around you, you know, husband, wife, child, grandchild, whatever it is, friend, you know, they, they are just a, a, a dim hint of the incredible happiness that has existed from eternity past between the Father and the Son and the, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. He is, you know what you can say about God, the thing you can say about him? He is eternally, totally, thoroughly happy. Always has been. Always has been. He's, he's, he's thoroughly, thoroughly happy. God is triune. Before there was anything, there was a loving God. There was a God who was, 
who was, who was loving and enjoying and basking in the love of the entire Godhead, enjoying a happiness that we can only approximate by a small, tiny degree, even in the very best of relationships on this earth. Each of the persons of the Trinity in eternity past was always enjoying all the love and adoration that they could ever hold or, or want. So here's, I got another question for you. Ready for this one? You got, the, you got God, triune God. He's got everything. He really doesn't need anything. He's got go love, go you know, adoring, and this one's, you know, whatever. Why create men and women? Why, cre- why create men and women? Well, you know, maybe he was lonely. Folks, I got to tell you something. Uh, if you're with someone who adores you, you ain't never lonely. You ain't never lonely. Well, maybe God, you know, created because he wanted uh, someone to bring glory to him. When you were adored and delighted in and blessed and being served and being loved, you have everything you need. The Bible says that all three, remember, are constantly glorifying each other. They give glory. They don't demand it. I don't think God needed more. I really don't think God needed more. Or maybe, you know, maybe he felt unloved. But well, we know this is, these are kind of ridiculous now. Now that I've, I've explained everything, these are, these are ridiculous. The, the, the Bible in a number of verses talks about the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father and the Spirit for the Son and this and that. And all, if you, you could look all over, all over the New Testament, all over the Scripture. Now, it might be, it might be true, the what I just said, maybe, does he, maybe he's lonely, maybe he needs someone to be glory to him, maybe he, needs, he feels unloved. It would be true if we had a Unitarian view of God and believed that there was only one God with one person. But in a triune God, each of the persons of the Trinity have all the love and all the adoration and the deep fellowship that they could ever want. They give it to each other perfectly. Listen, God is perfectly happy. He is perfectly happy. Happy. Now, let me ask you one more time, because you probably forgot already. Let me ask you one more time. Why would God create men and women? Why would he create men and women? Well, I got to tell you, there's only one possible answer. <laughs> there's only one answer that I could possibly think of. Why would God create men and women? The answer is that the Trinity wants a world full of people who are as happy as God is. And we will be happy when we share in that love. See, our God of love created us to do what? To receive? No, to give, to share his love. What God was doing when he created the world was trying to share the glory and the joy that he has always had inside of himself. There's no other good reason. There is no other good reason why he created you and me in this world. Why would a tri-personal God who already has this mutual communication of infinite happiness and joy and love create a world? Why? The answer is obviously not to get that mutual communication of love and joy, but to give it, to share it. He wanted to share it. He didn't create a world to get happy. He was already infinitely happy. He didn't create a world to get love. He was already infinitely filled with love. He created the world to share it with us, to bring us into the joy and the happiness and the fellowship with him that he enjoyed for all eternity. And it all started off really well, right? Did you read the beginning of the book? started off really well. But then... But then came the fall. And all of a sudden, the possibility was over. 
I mean, it was over. But folks, remember something. We're still made in the image of God. Okay. Because, because sin came in and marred us, doesn't mean we're not made in the image of God. We, are, we still bear the image of the creator. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Still have that. We still have the remnants. So listen, we still have the remnants of that original purpose coursing through us. We still, have, we still want it. We still hunt for it. We still want to have that love and that relationship. We want that. But it all fell to pieces. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, he, it says, you know what happened in the garden, basically? Let, 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 let's, let's bring it down to a phrase. We became alienated from God. We became, the Bible says, Paul says, alienated from God. And that word is a very interesting word. You know what it means? It means literally to be shut out from fellowship and intimacy with someone. Once you were intimate, once you had fellowship, once there was like this, you know, thing, you put your heads together, you get it, you know, you could complete the word, that was all gone. It was all gone. Not only that, but he says in Colossians chapter 1, not only were we alienated from God, but we became literally enemies of God. We didn't want anything to do with him. You know, God, we don't want to hear anything about God. We don't want to know anything about God. Uh, yes, we have, we have this very, we still desire intimacy. Only, you know what? We'll go about it in other ways now. We don't, we don't need God. We're going to do it another way. And folks, every other way is a wrong way. And every other way does not bring life. It brings death. It always brings death. You know, even though the boss says family comes second, culture says achieve higher, more success, you know, uh, you know when, we're, when, we're, when we're dying and we're in our beds, we long for relationships more than anything else. We know that. That's, why is that the case? Because we are made in the image of our creator. It's because the, the, that's ultimate reality. That is ultimate reality. We're made in the image of God, and we can't escape our nature. We can't escape what is at the center of the universe. And by the way, if, if, you, if you ever speak to, like, uh, uh, who are the people? Uh, uh, they're near the end. When you bring them in, the house, somebody's dying. Hospice, thank you very much. Okay, if you, if you talk to any, any hospice people, you know what they'll say? They'll say as people are dying, talk to, talk to any one of them. Uh, they never say, I wish I had built my business bigger. You know what, if I had made that one deal, I could have made that business bigger. They never say, I wish I had gotten the addition put on the house. Nobody ever says, I wish I had gotten the vice president of the company. I was so close, I could have got it. Oh, you know what they do say? They say, I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I had spent more time with my friends. I wish I hadn't let the relationships fall apart. Folks, we can't get away from who we are. We can't. Even people who don't know God have his image stamped upon them. Our God of love created us. Why? You know why? To give what we always wanted. To share his love with us. Now that leads to the most important practical thing that you need to realize. If this is true, if this is how God created the world, then your absolute highest purpose, your highest meaning, and the only way you'll ever be happy, fully happy, is if you are glorifying God above all other things. Did you hear what I said? you hear what I said? If you want to share in God's joy and delight, if we were created to share in God's joy and delight, then we have to do so as God the Father 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit do. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already rejoice in divine glory. Each person does not live for his own glory, but for the glory of others. That has got to become our purpose. Look, we're all concerned about our weight, right? Everybody's concerned about their weight. And I'm not saying don't watch your weight, okay? But if you get on the scale and your day is destroyed because you gained six pounds, you know, from the last time you went on there, uh, and, and you're more concerned about that than the sinful habit that is driving you away from God, from our Trinitarian God, then, folks, i got to tell you something uh, right now. That is a dead giveaway that you're trying to gain happiness that only, in another way that only comes through a relationship with the triune God. Compliments of friends, compliments of stranger, uh, you know, how, how beautiful we are, how shapely we are. When we're more concerned about that than what, what God thinks about it, that is a dead giveaway that, you know what, we're missing it. We're missing the mark. We are more concerned with what others think than what he thinks. If our approval depends on a job promotion, on a number of letters after our name and graduations, or how good our kids are progressing, then we know that we are trying to gain that happiness that can only be attained through our relationship with him with those things. Someone wrote this. This is where I got the weight thing from. When God's approval, will, service, and glory is preeminent in your life, then and only then will you be happy. It's the reason why you're being eaten up by criticism. It's the reason why you're going nuts because you gained weight. Why? It's because God is not number one in your life, and you are made to have God be number one in your life. If God created the world so that we may share in his happiness, then your absolute highest purpose, your meaning, and the only way that you'll ever be truly happy is if you are glorifying God above all others and above all else. Amen? All right. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are infinitely happy because they glorify the others and they don't seek glory themselves. As long as you're trying to get your glory through success and looks and status and popular opinion or whatever, or if anything is more important to you than God, you will never, ever be happy. Do you know why? It's because you were made for him. You were made for this. You were made for worship. And what else? What are, why else does it matter? This whole Trinitarian stuff matter? Well, I think because we can experience his love right now and forever. Now and forever. Because of the nature of our God, he made a way to bring us back in. Listen, we were sinful. We, we have a propensity to find these other things to make us happy. That's just the way, that's what sin did. Our nature was shattered. We're like a, we're like a compact. You know, uh, uh, you're, you're jogging, you know, you like jogging. I don't know why, but some people like jogging. And they go out and they're running and they see by the side of the road, they, there's a little compact. You pick up the compact and so, obviously a car went over it or something. And it's all smashed and it's in a thousand places. And if you look at it, you can kind of, yeah, that's me, I think. Yeah, my nose is up there and my mouth's down there. You kind of can make it out. But not really. It's kind of it's messed up. See, that's us. That's who we are. That's what sin did to us. And, and, and we're, we're trying ways, you know, to glue and put the thing back together in our own ways, and it just doesn't work. It just it has never worked, folks. But God made a way for those who have rejected his desires for them to come back and share in his happiness, to share in his intimacy once again. Because of God's great love for us, he made a way 
that we might be happy, that we might find joy and deep, deep fellowship. You know what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20? Here's what it says. And through him, who? Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free, as Sabrina prayed before, free from accusation. He doesn't see you. God, he sees what Christ has done. You know, you look at that name, Jesus Christ, second part of the, of the creed, Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's actually a title. It's really not a surname. It's not his last name. And calling Jesus the Christ, the New Testament writers were pointing to Jesus as the long-awaited-for Messiah. Christ in the Greek uh, version of the Hebrew word is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, king, ruler, the one who's going to come, the one who's going to save. He is the long-waited-for one that was going to save his people from their sins. If you do not understand the life of the Trinity, folks, listen, if you don't get the Trinity at all or you, you absolutely reject it, you will not understand what was done for you. You can never understand the sacrifice that God made for you. See, the path is open, but it came at a really high price. Here's the best way to explain that, right? Um, if, if we, we probably have some visitors here. I don't know if we have a visitor. But uh, if you came up to me, a visitor, this has kind of happened to me. Uh, that's why I'm, I, can, I can use this. Um, you're a visitor, you come up to me, and I've never met you, and afterwards you catch me on the way out the door, I'm saying, hey, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. And you say, uh, I hated the service today. I really, you know, I hated the service. I didn't like the music. I don't know who they, who, I don't know who they think they are. What's with the lights? What's with all this stuff? I, 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 you know, I really didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't like the people that much. Tell you the truth, uh, I will never be back at the crossing ever, ever again. I hated everything about this entire service. I will never see you again. Now, if somebody did that, um, I would probably be very disappointed, and I feel pretty bad. I would feel bad, and they go out the door, and tomorrow staff me, I go, you know, this idiot came up to me at the service and said to me, you know what? He hated everything. He hated the music. He hated well, that dope. So anyway, I, but I would feel bad. I'd be thinking about it. I'd be thinking about it all night. If one of you who is my friend, some of you who are here, they, some of you have been here for a long time, um, known for years, come to the church for years, I've been your pastor, if you came up to me at the service and said, you know what? You're a dope. You're a lousy preacher. The service stunk. I really don't like the crossing anymore. Uh, I, I don't like it at all. If you did that to me, I would feel really bad. i got to tell you something right now. I would, I would go home today, and I would be like, I don't even know if I'd be able to watch the Giants, you know, today. I, I, I mean, I don't even, that is, that's really bad. I mean, that's really bad. I'd probably go home and just go, what in the world? I'd probably lay down. I'd sleep. I'd take a nap. I'd do something. I would feel really, really bad. If one of my daughters came up to me after the service and said, I hate you, and I never want to see you again, and I'll never be back. That would be, even, that would be even worse. That would be almost the worst thing that could happen. It would be worse than my friends. But if Mary Ann came to me and she said the same thing, that would be almost too hard to even bear. A psychologist will tell you there's nothing worse than the death of a spouse 
or a divorce and you lose somebody. Why? It's because the longer, deeper, more wonderful, and more profound a love relationship is, the more painfully searing it is when you lose it. That's just the way it is, right? Of, of course, when you lose someone, you know, you lose, lose a significant love relationship, sometimes you never get over it. Sometimes people are scarred your entire life. Listen, nobody on the face of the earth has ever experienced anything like what happened to Jesus Christ when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he had an infinitely perfect, eternal love relationship in the Godhead. Look, I don't care if you had the best marriage. Somebody on, on planet Earth had the best marriage. There is somebody would find, maybe they were going to be in heaven, and one day, uh, you know, Jesus is going to go, and they had the best marriage, and we're all going to do this. They were married 40 years. They never fought. They were wonderful, blah, blah, blah. Somebody had the best marriage in history, right? i got to tell you something right now. If you took the best marriage in history, okay, it doesn't even come close. It doesn't even come close to the relationship of the Godhead. And it wouldn't even come close. And when that person lost their spouse, you know, 40, 50, 60 years together, maybe they were holding, you read these stories, they're holding hands, and, you know, they both die within 12, 12 minutes of each other, whatever. There is, a, there is a pain that cannot be explained. There is an, but when Jesus, when Jesus looked to the Father and said, why have you forsaken? There was an infinite pain. There was an infinite torture. We cannot understand it. We will never understand it. Yet we must believe it. You see, only if you understand the inner workings of the Trinity do you understand what it cost Jesus Christ to save you. When Jesus went to the cross, he was doing what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had been doing inside the Trinity, in a sense, forever, deferring to each other, seeking not their own glory but the glory of others. There's an unselfishness in the heart of God. There's an other orientation in the heart of God that is absolutely profound. He gave everything so that we could be restored from our alienation, so that we may be saved. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave everything so that we could be happy. In him. Believe it. It's not silly. It is our faith.